Hello, and welcome to the Josias Podcast. Uh, we're joined for this episode by Peter and Jonathan, and the discussion this week will be on the common good and the liturgy. Before we begin, Peter, would you tell us a little bit about that piece of music we just heard? Yes, um, that is the Sanctus from my uh, Missa Honorificentia Populi Nostri, which uh, was commissioned by an Austrian in the year 2017 in honor of um, Our Lady um, Help of Christians, uh, the patroness of Innsbruck. And it was being sung there by a choir in Denver. It's very beautiful. How did you come to be, how did you come to uh, uh, start composing? Um, that goes all the way back to high school. I, I've, I, I grew up in a musical family and I, I had a fantastic music teacher in in my all boys high school who um, uh, was the choir director and the organist. And I took composition lessons with him, started to compose um, probably around the age of 17. And then I just kept at it ever since then. Um, I can't do it all the time, obviously, because that's not my main, main job, but I, I do keep up, keep it up. And, and did your, did your interest in music sort of coincide with your interest in liturgy or did they start at different points? No, that's a really good question. I think they've, they've almost always gone hand in hand. I mean, I was in a children's choir at a very typical Novus Ordo parish in New Jersey. I mean, I, I, I cringe to think about some of the things that I was involved in without knowing any better, but, um, but I, I was in the children's choir and, uh, and then in high school, I was in a boys scola. Um, you know, we sang everything from, uh, Gregorian, Gregorian chant to the beach boys, um, and, uh, you know, kind of a glee club sort of thing. And then when I was in college at Thomas Aquinas college, I joined the Scola, um, which was, a, at the time quite a large ensemble. I want to say about 12 guys, uh, who met every week and sang every Sunday, uh, all the propers of the mass and sometimes the ordinary of the mass as well. Um, so I, I, I think, I think that every, was that most, that was Gregorian chant, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So I think every step of the way, my discovery of the liturgy always had a musical element to it. Um, I wouldn't say I discovered it through the music, but the music was always there. Yeah, I have to say my own, uh, my first experience, well, I, that's not strictly true. The first uh, mass that I ever attended that I did not leave halfway through with the thought, well, they don't believe anything clearly, uh, was a, a, a low mass. And what struck me there was, uh, and it really affected me was the, the, the silence, uh, and the way in which it was not, uh, inwardly focused. And later I started going to high masses too, and I had the same experience, but I think it's, 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 I think music is the liturgy should be musical. That's the normative liturgy, but there is something beautiful about a low mass, I think. And for me, uh, particularly at that time in my life, it was so outwardly mm -hmm. focused. It was clear the priest was not putting a performance on for me. It was clear. Yeah. His, you know, uh, it was clear that what he was doing, he was taking very, very seriously, but it was a job, a part of, it was a sacrifice that he was performing uh, on my behalf, directed towards God, but it was not a a performance for me. And on that note, Jonathan, you wrote this article and you wrote about uh, how the liturgy 
and religion is by its nature public, which goes so much against what we hear, at least in America, all the time that, you know, religion is a private matter. You, you know, don't talk about your religion. That's private. Uh, and, you know, don't mix it with politics, et cetera, et cetera. Can you, can you say a little bit about why you came to the conclusion that religion was uh, uh, public? Yes. Um, but my thoughts on that started with reading Saint, or Saint, soon to be Saint, one day to be a Saint, hopefully, Pope Benedict, <laughs> Pope Benedict um, in his <laughs> The Spirit of the Liturgy, where he talks about in the Old Testament, um, he talks about how the structures of the, the Hebrew society really which could be sort of um, uh, uh, discussed in terms of ceremonial, moral, and judicial precepts, the precepts we know. Um, he speaks of how the moral and judicial precepts presuppose the ceremonial precepts because um, morality and law are pointless and ineffective, ultimately, without a Godward perspective that comes first. So, and he, and he connects this Godward perspective that is embodied in ceremonial law. He connects that to the the structures of the society, and he emphasizes the social the social component of of this um, ceremonial precept. Um, so I decided to explore that thought. I saw a connection. I wanted to explore the a little more philosophically, and I turned to Charles de Conic, um, who wrote a great treatise on the common good, the, the primacy of the common good against the personalists. Um, where he just philosophically why or how the the the, um, the private good of individual persons is subordinated but for the sake of the common good of the whole the whole society the whole community and that that flipped around a lot of my understanding of the relationship between you know politics and ethics i had sort of often heard of you know, right. people speaking of politics as a sub science of ethics of um, uh, sort of subordinating the, the the public aspect to the to the aspect of individual ethics and individual ends, um, but Deconic kind of showed me how that's it's actually the other way around. If you look in the in the tradition of Saint Thomas and Aristotle and, and Plato, um, so the the common good is is prior to, uh, prior to the individual good. Um, and the dignity of the individual actually consists not merely in sticking to his own individual good and keeping to himself. That's sort of the personalist um, or, liber or liberal individualist uh, <laughs> sense of autonomy. Um, rather, the dignity of the individual consists in transcending his own individual good and devoting himself to the common good for its own sake. And so... Um, well just to just to focus it a little bit, and what is it that makes what made you you tie the common good then, if that is the end of man, a, a good that can be shared, uh, not an individual private good, uh, what made you tie that specifically with uh, uh, that being a religious act sort of right. of its nature? Right. So um, I think this is implicit. In Aristotle, even if Aristotle doesn't make the connection explicit, but it's certainly implicit that, well, what he does make explicit is that the way in which the individual, the, the activity by which the individual sort of attains the common good is is contemplation um, 
an act of the virtue of wisdom, the highest virtue, and so contemplation is the highest act, and that consists primarily in uh, contemplation of the highest good, the, the first cause, the, the first principle of all things. Yeah, I, I thought that was that was really brilliant. You show because through that you show that um, that human beings. Uh, only are really fully human when they are worshiping the true God, that uh, they're attaining to, you know, the, the end for which they were made. Um, so their, their nature as human beings. And that uh, Ratzinger, the beginning of the spirit of the liturgy there, um, he talks about uh, precisely about that aspect, that if, a law that, that denies the worship of the true God denies what is most, uh, what is highest in human beings. And so it becomes kind of mm-hmm. inhuman. Um, yes, actually a, a really strong support of that, if, if I might add this, is um, what St. Thomas argues in the Prima Pars, question 93, about the image of God in man. Um, and he has this magnificent vista of, of articles where he starts with, you know, uh, what is this image? You know, does it consist in the soul, the rational soul? Yes, it does. Um, does it consist in uh, the exercise, uh, the, the having of the faculties of intellect and will? Yes, it does. Does it consist in the exercise of those even more so? What about the exercise of them towards God? Yes, that's where it is the most. And then his final the culmination is when we're actually thinking and willing God in the beatific vision, that is when we are most to his image and likeness. Um, and so in, in that way, the, this idea of heavenly worship and adoration as man's final end is connected with his very rational nature by St. Thomas, right? That's what makes us in the image yes. and likeness of God. And I think that's a profoundly anti-liberalistic in, insight because it, it shows that the whole reason why we have intellect and will to begin with is to worship God right, and to see him right. face to face. There's no other purpose why we have them. Yeah. Ultimately, ultimately. Yeah. And I think you, that you see that manifested in externally in human culture. If you look at, um, well, at our own liberal culture or at um, <laughs> really existing socialism in, uh, in Eastern Europe, the buildings that people build when God is denied, um, they're terribly ugly. There's this sort of spiritual darkness. If you look at the parts of Bucharest that were built under Ceausescu, for example, you know, it's just, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it was helpful, yeah. it was helpful that, that this, um, this question from St. Thomas stresses ultimately the, the, the exercise of the faculties of nature, the, the activity, the activity largely what I was thinking and yes. connecting the common good to the activity of the liturgy, which is a very practical, concrete kind of activity. The common good is sometimes also described as order, um, kind of a hierarchical order, or among all the diverse natures in creation and all the diverse states in life um, within, a, within a given um, society. And those states in life are characterized, they really, they express themselves or they perfect themselves by their activities. So, um, it's very fitting that the common good is actually also kind of incarnated in, in a very concrete form. Um, it's not so vague. Oh, I have knowledge. Um, it's, it's incarnated in a, in, a, in a very concrete activity, which is ultimately, I think, ritualistic, uh, liturgical. 
Yes. It, you know, I was really, I've always been struck by if a passage in um, Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium, which of course I know is a, is a document with, um, with many um, difficulties in it, many problems, but um, it, it does at the very beginning of it, it kind of outlines a vision of the liturgy, which, which goes very well with what you're saying, Jonathan. Um, uh, let me just read this passage here. Um, it says, this is paragraph two, it is through the liturgy, especially that the faithful are enabled to express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church. The church is essentially both human and divine, visible but endowed with invisible realities, zealous in action and dedicated to contemplation, present in the world but as a pilgrim, so constituted that in her the human is directed toward and subordinated to the divine, the visible to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to the city yet to come, the object of our quest. Yeah, no, that is. That it's really is, re remarkable uh, text. Yeah, magnificent. Very remarkable. So let me, let me push the point in this way to sort of uh, uh, bring up an objection. Uh, Thomas often says that contemplation is solitary. And we can see this, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about something, you're thinking about it, you're not doing it with someone else. It's not, it's not like even, uh, you know, you can work with other people, but when you're contemplating, you yourself are contemplating alone. How does that, uh, does that uh, undercut the political sort of uh, or religious description you've given um, um, Peter and Jonathan? I would, if you, if you thought of the common good as a kind of totalitarian, where, where you basically eliminate the, the distinct activities of distinct individuals and distinct parts within the whole. Um, so when you, when you speak of a common life of a community and a common activity, you really mean an activity that's composed of many different kinds of activities. So, you know, you have, and there's a hierarchy among them. So you have, well, you have in society, you, know, you have your, your um, servile artists who make who make shoes and they do that kind of separately from the people who wear the shoes and walk around that's a, a, they're, they're separate activities but they're still participating in a, in a common order and I think um, so well the point, the point is that the of, of a person's activity is not to the exclusion of the fact that the whole is still a whole directed to but um, and you see that in the object too, right? Uh, uh, the right, object it's, it's, of contemplation, of the highest contemplation, is God, and it's He is precisely why it's a common good. So even if the individual, even if there was only one person in heaven, God would still be. Deconic stresses this, I think. God would still be a common good. It would still be something mm -hmm. that was of its nature shareable. Right. Right, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, um, the fact is, I mean, maybe it's not just a fact, but but I I always think back to Saint Thomas's um, description. He gets most elaborate, I think, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, where he talks about the diversity in creation. It's ultimately, it's it, I mean, it's ultimately all in its very diversity. You know, in the in the distinction and in individuality of the parts, it's all action. Well, an expression of God, but also directed back to God as 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 its final cause, its object. 
Um, yeah, and I, I really think uh, uh, the 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 beautiful music we heard at the beginning is a sort of fitting yes. earthly image of that because with harmony you get not only the good of the parts but it's only together in their order their mutual ordering mm-hmm. uh, that you really get their true uh, purpose and good that comes about. So there's there's something beautiful about the idea of a choir which has to act together and which through the order of its parts brings about its greatest good. Because of the uh, failures of the internet or some other unknown cause, uh, an unknown portion of the recording is missing at this point. Um, So we now resume the conversation at a later point in time, uh, but uh, be advised that some minute or two of discussion uh, is lost to you, dear listener. So here's here's another objection that maybe that sort of latches onto that, Joel, and also maybe um, is a, a way of, of uh, then bringing in Peter's um, article uh, about kingship and the liturgy, namely. Why the objection would be why is uh, why is there inequality in the liturgy? Why do you have so there's a certain amount of distinction, but couldn't you say it would be better to have an egalitarian liturgy where although you have different people joining in, they're all since everyone is ultimately there's a, ultimately uh, there's a kind of equality among um, <laughs> human beings since we're all destined to enjoy the same good. We're all uh, sharing in the common good. Each one receives the same infinite good. So it seems like the liturgy should be, you know, egalitarian. We should be, you know, circled around the altar <laughs> together as brothers right. and the, sisters the prob- in Christ, you know, yeah. sharing this one well, good. Well, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tempting fantasy, I suppose, um, for uh, people living in an egalitarian world. Um, I'm not sure that that it would have been understood by anybody from any former civilization, but um, but the, the problem with it is, is, is quite simply that it's false to reality. Um, it's, it's false to reality in, in multiple ways. Uh, first and most importantly, it's, it's false to, to God and his relationship to the cosmos um, because God is supremely one and simple um, and Lord of all and everything proceeds from him in a diverse um, hierarchy of natures, uh, higher and lower natures, um, we see that with the angels, obviously, with with the animals and plants, the world that we live in, and even within human beings, um, not everyone is a father or a mother. Not everyone is a judge or a legislator. Not everyone is um, a teacher or a student. I mean, there there are all different roles that people have. Even something as simple as sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses. Right? You, you know, a soprano cannot sing the bass line, um, and vice versa. Um, and so there's a, there's a, a diversity in creation out of which the most beautiful order of the whole emerges. Um, and so if the liturgy is going to be true to that reality, it also needs to be hierarchical and diverse and organized um, around. Yeah, it, it has to be organized. In other words, not a kind of mob activity where everybody does whatever he wants, but but where there's one action taking place with many participating in it, each according to his own or her own station. Um, that's, and that's exactly what we see in all the, 
the historical liturgies. And I would even go so far as to say that's what you see in every single religion that has ever existed, um, both in the true religion, but then also in, in the catalog of false religions. Isn't the that... objection, though, uh, can't it be be made from a historical angle as well? That, uh, well, there there is some order, but, you know, a lot of this is just a Baroque accretions. And if we went back to, if, 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 if you will, a, a catechumenal way, a, a new uh, catechumenal way, and uh, sort of... Uh, all were equal as they surely were in the early church and sat around mm. a table. And uh, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be pure? Isn't that the real history mm. before the Gregorian and medieval you know, superstitions were added in? Sure. I mean, there, there are some people without any uh, scholarly <laughs> credentials who might argue that way, <laughs> but you, you can't actually sustain it as a as a serious interpretation of of the history of Christian worship. Um, but maybe more to to the point, um, you know, if we didn't have divine revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, um, and and if we didn't have the t- tradition of the church, but let's just stick with scripture for now then we might be able to speculate about what kind of worship would be ideal for us. And we could come up with all sorts of models, many of which would conflict with each other. But what, what's presented to us in Revelation is very clearly a monarchical and hierarchical picture of um, God and his court, um, his, uh, his courtiers, his celestial um, temple, his palace, uh, and that's what the temple represented, and that's what um, the early Christians strove for in various ways, obviously not in a simplistic way. Uh, so it, it just seems to me that against we have to take seriously the concrete revelation actually given and not simply whatever fanciful ideas we might have. <clears throat> Maybe you can say something about the the role of the of the priest in this or the bishop in the in the most um, perfect form of the liturgy. I remember when you wrote that um, article, which we'll link um, at the New Liturgical Movement about this, mm-hmm. um, someone in the comments objected to, in the Roman rite, in its uh, older form, the kind of uh, exaggerated veneration that's paid to the celebrating pontiff. Um, all these bows mm-hmm. to him and kissing his hands and so on and all these things. Why do you think that uh, makes sense? Shouldn't all the honor be paid to God and not to, you know, some bishop? Yeah, I, I think it's fasc- fascinating to me how how often these questions come back to um, <clears throat> whether we understand the principle of symbolism, of liturgical symbolism, um, or not. And that really is connected with whether we understand the sacramental principle, which is connected to the incarnation. So it all, it all goes back to the, the word becoming flesh. Um, when, when the apostles and disciples and others paid homage to Christ and they fell before him in, in, in worship, um, it could have looked to an observer as if they're just paying this homage to a mere man. Why are they doing that? Shouldn't God alone be, be worshiped? But in Christ, that's exactly what they were doing. They were, they were worshiping God made man. Um, and so in the liturgy as well, when we venerate the priest or the bishop, right, it's obvious that he's standing in for Christ. And there's never, it seems to me that no sane person really has any difficulty 
seeing that. You know, when, when you see the Cardinal coming in with the Capamania, you're not thinking, you know, who is this Baroque prince with 20 feet of, of red silk? You're thinking, you know, the heavens are opening and Christ is visiting us again. You know, this is, it's, it seems to me that a child can grasp that very simply. And, and maybe the problem you know, Chesterton might say something like the more educated people get, the, the dumber they become or something. I don't know what, but but it, it seems like something that's that's fairly transparent, that, that symbolism of it's all about Christ the King. It's not about us. It's not about me and you as yeah. mere mortals, right? And I think uh, even even in the, if you look at the Eastern liturgies where the, the vestments, I believe, I could be wrong here, but I've, I've been told are modeled on... Uh, the sort of uh, Byzantine court garb that that would have been worn in the the courts of the Eastern emperors. Exactly. Even there, you see the the emphasis, and this is something I think isn't talked about that much, but I think there really is a denial of this in the modern world. The emphasis is on the fact that Christ is our King mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, you might say, "Oh, look, he's dressed as he's dressed as a court official, or, or as a, a as if he were an emperor, or something like that." But the point is that Christ is our king. Christ is truly our king. He's our king now, and he's our king always. So there's yes. an, a fittingness there, right? And and if I could just throw in this this idea too, um, I mean, if we actually tried to strip away from the liturgy everything that has a courtly or imperial origin we would end up with something even more bare than Bunini's Missa Normativa. Um, <laughs> because the, even something like Martin Mosebach talks about this in his wonderful book, The Heresy of Formlessness, you know, the use of candles and incense for the gospel procession is taken straight from the Byzantine court etiquette. You know, they, when, the emperor traveled, when the emperor walked around, he was followed with candles and incense, uh, or, or perhaps preceded with candles and incense. Um, and so... I, th- I think that the 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 sharper question <laughs> that comes up and the more challenging question for modern people is this one. Might it not simply be the case that monarchy is the more natural and the more divinely intended form of government for human beings, such that we're supposed to read off of it something true about God, right? J- just the way that when you look at the relationship of man and woman, the way John, John Paul II looks at it, he reads off some very profound truths from that natural <clears throat> relationship Maybe God's intention was, and certainly historically it seems to have played out, that most human beings will be living in a world of hierarchy and authority and paternity, um, you know, and therefore the liturgy is going to be filled with this because it's actually the most natural thing for us. And what we're living in in modern times is a highly unnatural, highly artificial um contrary arrangement that may have some arguments in favor of it, but it's it's certainly more conventional and so that, that that's at least something that I want to throw out there. Yeah. Interesting, <laughs> interesting that I was struck that you brought up Chesterton earlier because I, this this subject has been reminding me a lot of Chesterton's agreement for tradition in in uh, orthodoxy in the Ethics of Elfland, where he calls tradition the democracy of the dead, and the, he 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 says that, that the first principle of democracy is that the essential things in, in men are the things they hold in common, not the things they hold separately. Um, and it seems like, well, I, I, I've wondered a little bit about, about the argument that he presents there, which he presents as sort of an argument from the common good. Um, but but it's it's almost an, a, a common good argument for a kind of, of well, tradition as democracy. Um, 
Right. I, and I, so on that point, on, on the democracy point, maybe we could explore this just for a moment. The uh, Nowadays, as I think Potter has, has pointed out, everybody, even despots who are, who are <laughs> transparently not Democrats, try to, tries to justify power democratically. I mean, uh, I think even in North Korea, they have elections, <laughs> right? right? Uh, miraculously, always everyone votes the same way. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but everyone tries to have, have this democratic uh, explanation or justification for authority. Whereas I think the Catholic teaching and the truth is that authority mm-hmm. does not come mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the people. It comes from God, uh, as, as St. Paul taught. What is it about democracy that's, that's so captured the imagination of moderns? And, and is it true? And if it's, if it's ha- have things changed? Have we developed? <laughs> does doctrine need to develop here? Do we need to say, well, you know, once upon a time, the liturgy represented kingship but now that was that was in our infancy now modern man uh you know something something dignity something something uh <laughs> egalitarian uh, worship well let, I mean, let me defend uh, democracy a little bit i think you you can um i mean i'm i'm <laughs> the greatest monarchist but uh but still uh you have to distinguish between um an ancient idea of uh, participation in political rule, um, which is more sort of a Republican tradition than the democratic one, and a modern liberal democracy, which is founded um, in a denial of the common good. So there is something uh, attractive about saying, look, everyone everyone is to share in the common good. And so everyone should uh, in some way participate uh, in bringing it about. And uh, so Aristotle thinks it's good for, uh, not for everyone, but at least for the, those who are capable of being citizens to all share to some extent in political rule. That I think is, is natural. And so St. Thomas will say the most natural form of government is a mixed form of government where you have... Uh, you have a monarchical principle that, that represents um, authority uh, and all these things we've been saying, hierarchy, you have a, an aristocratic principle and so on. But you also have a, a democratic element so that uh, many participate. You know, in it's in the fascinating as you describe that. Um, it's just, it just occurred to me that the, the way in which active participation has been understood in the liturgical reform um, yeah. You can see this from the 1940s all the way onwards as a kind of um, getting everyone involved as much as possible, especially with external actions, really corresponds to a democratic mentality or structure. And like you want everybody to vote, right? They all have to, you all have to vote, right? Um, whereas something like the interior participation that so many of us experience when we attend a low mass or a, or a high mass where we're in, we're kneeling in the pews and we're looking at a splendid ceremony taking place with a, a priest and perhaps a deacon and the servers and there's this kind of, let's call it Carolingian court drama, right? As, as some people call it, this this is unfolding in front of our eyes and we're giving ourselves to it 
mind and heart. We just, you know, it's actually, we are praying because of what we're seeing and we're actually participating in it as well, but much more the way that I imagine, you know, an Israelite participated in the government of King David. I mean, he didn't really have anything to say about it. It just happened. David did his wars and, and maybe this man, you know, fought sometimes, maybe he just, you know, um, stayed at home with his crops, but there was a real participation of the citizen in the monarchical and temple-centered regime, um, but it wasn't this active yeah. participation that that democratic society ex- makes us and so expect. Your, your right? point on voting uh, uh, reminded me of something that a a friend of the Josias, Adrian Vermule, likes to talk about, which is the, and it ties into Jonathan's point uh, as well, <laughs> which is that it's not as if in this modern society there's no liturgies anymore as people cease going to church. It's just that the liturgies have shifted and they're still public liturgies. They're just, uh, and they're still symbolic and, and all those things that you can see, make all these parallels. And I wonder what, what some of those modern liturgies might be. And I think voting is oh, actually one yeah. of them because, you know, if you vote in a presidential election, you're really, you're, you're hardly affecting anything. Uh, but people make it into this hugely important thing as if it's it's the, you know, if you don't vote, you can't criticize, which never made any sense to me at all. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. You know, I, I saw this um, incredible article that I highly recommend if you haven't seen it already. It's called The Sacralization of the Profane and the Profanation of the Sacred by Pater Karl Wallner. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, it, he gave it as a lecture in German, and it was then translated on a website called Canticum um, Salomonis. But um, basically, I mean, he, he has a long section in there where he talks about modern athletics and these huge sporting events right. uh, and, the, and the way that people throw themselves body and soul into their team and into chanting for them. And it's a, it's a quasi-religious experience and people will, you know, will, will, will come to fist fights over this. I mean, it's, you know, there's clearly a passionate dedication of a political nature going on there, which has all the markings of a secular religion. Although there is some precedent uh, in in Byzantium at the the blues and the greens were the two big chariot racing, <laughs> and they actually ended up having huge political influence. So they they were essentially political parties, but not just political parties because of you know in the East people would riot over doctrine, right? Uh, which is almost unthinkable now. <laughs> uh, Except on the internet. Also, uh, at the time of the podium, yeah, at the time of, in comm boxes. Yes, find it still. Uh, at the time of the Fodian schism, for instance, you know, I forget if it was the Blues or the Greens. One of them was the party of Ignatius, and one of them was the party of Fodius, and one of them was the moderate, and one of them was the 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 traditional, you know. Uh, uh, drive out all the the crypto iconoclasts and the other was you know well we need to all move yeah. together now we've passed that so it's very interesting that sports comes 
comes back. And I think you're right. Nowadays, it, it, sports really is. It's it's a, a substitute liturgy. What do people do on Sundays right. in America? Well, and you know what you're saying there, I think um, it's completely football, natural right? for, for human beings to want to form these kinds of teams and to compete. I mean, you see see beautiful examples of that, of that in, in Italy, um, in, in a town like Siena, where you've got all of these colorful teams that that compete against one another on certain special feast days. Um, but see there, the beautiful thing is that the Catholic culture has, um, in a sense, um, uh, sublimated this instinct of competition and of uh, sort of symbolic warfare and has connected it with guilds, which are themselves connected with saints. Um, and so it's always connected with the church. So right. everyone's competing as a member of the same mystical body. So basically everyone's really on the same team, but they're on different parts of the same team. Right, it's, right. it's a fascinating thing to me how this can happen, but it's. Whereas you, you take that away in modern times, and, and that's what I think leads to s- some of this um, strange behavior that we see. Yeah, and that was a, that was another point. I think uh, uh, I think Jonathan, you were making this point recently about how uh, integralism isn't simply you know in the sphere of politics and nowhere else. Uh, religion really should you know, yeah. and our our duties to the church really should color all of our lives. And would you would you say something about that? Yes. Well, I would say. Um, integralism isn't political if you take politics to to simply mean this this, this competition between I don't know between different yeah politics, party politics competition between ideologies or or uh, well this Hobbesian state of war um, that's that that I mean there's 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 a place for for competition and contest in politics but still in a greater context of concern for the common good and politics and class is the art. Of, of the common good or the art of the art of um, putting things in order to the common good and so insofar as politics puts things in order puts all things in order um, it, it extends re- really to all all spheres of of human life and, and, and activity and that kind of breaks down a lot of these social dualisms again between like private and public life um, state and church family and workplace or, or all these kinds of positions that we've kind of artificially created in, in the modern world kind of break down once you realize right. what politics really means. Right. And and you hear uh, particularly from from what, what are called conservatives, but are really just right liberals, you often hear, oh, the importance of the pre-political institutions. And of course, there's a sense in which uh, you know, Aristotle's quite clear about this. The the end of the family, the end of the village, and the end of the state aren't the same. And there's a sense in which the family and the village are prior to the city. And that's all well and good. But they end up meaning it in this way of like, once you have the state, uh, you know, these things are still prior as in more important. And they have to be shielded from any contact with the city so that we have our families it's a very American idea, you know. I'll I'll go out to my compound in Montana and not uh, not have the government meddling with my business anymore. Right. I mean, I think there's still, there's still room in, in an Aristotelian political philosophy for you know putting constraints upon how much government officials can interfere with you know family life or the life of the village or whatnot. But that's not because those things aren't political. It's because within a political order, you have different, as we said, different stations, um, different kinds of activities. Um, to have their own, to have their own proper spheres, but they're still all part of the same order. Right. Exactly. If we uh, go back to Ratzinger for a moment, whom you began with, uh, Jonathan, there you have um, 
you have a recognition of the necessity of uh, the worship of the true God for true political life. But um, Ratzinger ends up, if you read what he writes more directly about politics, um, in a kind of modified liberal position where he says, um, you know, he uses the, the Buckenferde dictum, the, the liberal democracies uh, depend on certain um, uh, Grundlagen, certain uh, foundations that they can't give themselves. So you need to have a Christian people for a functioning uh, political order, he says, but uh, there shouldn't be any, as it were, official... Uh, the, the, in, the influence should all be sort of indirect through the consciences of the individual people who are both Christians and politicians or, or citizens. But you shouldn't have any kind of direct juridical relationship between the spiritual mm. and the temporal power. Uh, this position, of course, ultimately is incoherent um, for a couple, couple of reasons. I mean, one, yeah. one reason is that, that if, you had, if you happen to have a society in which many statesmen were Catholic and were serious Catholics, they would naturally bring their religion to bear on their moral reasoning and on their political actions and judgments. And so it would be inevitable that a Catholic culture would grow up in the very midst of parliament, in the very midst of, of the state um, operations. Uh, and so it, it would be completely artificial for those people to pretend kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge that, that they weren't acting as Catholics. Um, but I think that the deeper reason is that, you know, as Pius XII teaches, the church is the authorized interpreter of the natural law. Um, and if, if rulers are supposed to rule according to the natural law um, through the right use of human reason, they have to look to the church for guidance about uh, the, especially in, in more difficult matters, like bioethical matters, perhaps. Um, I mean, it, it anyway, so it seems to me that you can't ultimately sustain this idea of you know, you have a bunch of people who happen to be Catholics or Christians, and they and they happen to act according to that worldview in their strictly secular and neutral political environment. That that just doesn't compute. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it seems to me this brings up a, an interesting question about um, kind of a reciprocal relation, uh, sort of a two-way street of influence between liturgy and politics. Um, and this was the, I did an article on this uh, mm. politics and the liturgical movement. Um, it's not only the case that uh, the liturgy will have an influence on political life, but there's also uh, an influence in the other direction. That if there's something corrupt about the way politics is set up, that will end up having a negative influence uh, on the church and even on the most, mm. the holy of holies in the church, the sacred liturgy. So if you have a, a political life that's cut off from, uh, you know, that's sort of isolated in this liberal secular way, um, that will mm. end up distorting the liturgy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that a lot in the American context with, um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've encountered the attitude of well, I mean, we don't care what the Vatican just said in Redemptionis Sacramentum or, or, or some other document. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we do it locally. This is our, you know, our, um, uh, 
this is what makes our people happy or what they expect or whatever. So you, you have this, um, that attitude about, you know, I've got my, my pickup truck and my guns, you know, on my ranch and, you know, we're just going to kind of rule ourselves almost like the Cyclops, you know, that <laughs> just, uh, kind of, and, and that, that happens a lot in this radical liturgical pluralism, yeah. um, where, where people are sort of making it up as they go along, you know? Um, so yeah, that's definitely one way you can see what the point you were making. We've always done it this way. We're always starts at about 1968, yeah. 1969. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, in my piece, I looked at how the the liturgical movement developed and tried to see the connections there to developments in political life. So you have um, in the early phase of the of the liturgical movement, you have a kind of a reaction against what's seen as an individualistic piety, um, subjective piety, Pius Parsh calls it in one very polemical. Pius Parsh, he was a, a big figure in the liturgical movement here in Austria. And he wrote a very polemical essay called Objective and Subjective Piety. And there he, he attacks what he sees as the 19th century's um, kind of sentimental and subjective piety, where the the liturgical action is just sort of something that happens, but the all the emphasis is on um, individual devotions. Mm-hmm. So you have people, you know, uh, reading meditative books or praying the rosary or whatever while mass is, is going on. And the mass is just sort of uh, something that's happening, but the real spiritual life is going on in these individual devotions. And Par says, no, you want people to really... Um, participate in the objective action of Christ in the liturgy. That's what, what's important is what's objectively happening uh, in uh, through the sacraments and not um, through subjective devotions. And in Parsh and in other figures in the liturgical movement before the Second World War, um, you have a, a, a huge amount of emphasis on uh, on the corporate nature of the liturgy. Um, and you have some interesting then uh, parallels with what's going on in between the two, the world wars. You have these political reactions against uh, 19th century individualism. You have these authoritarian and totalitarian regimes um, going up uh, all over Europe. And that comes to be reflected more and more in the liturgical movement. So at one point, uh, Ildefons Herweg in the Abbot of Maria Lach even says um, what fascism is in the political realm, the liturgical movement is in the religious <laughs> realm. Um, and you have these huge churches uh, by <laughs> architects like Dominikus Böhm in Germany um, where you have a, sort of this monumental church architecture that is uh, very similar to sort of the, the fascist monumentalism that Mussolini and Hitler were, were putting up. Um, but then, of course, what happens after World War II in the political realm is a swing of the pendulum in the opposite direction. You have this uh, great reaction against totalitarianism, um, but what replaces it is not a, an, a real uh, understanding of the common good, but instead it's a mm-hmm. kind of new individualism. And you get kind of this atmosphere of the 60s with this sort of egalitarian fraternalism um, and uh, and so on, 
And that then becomes reflected in what the liturgical thinkers yeah, is, are thinking after, after World War II. Um, you switch from this, this pre-World War II emphasis in people like Pius Parsh and Ildefons Herwig and on the objective and on a, a lot of emphasis actually on Christ the King. If you read Pius Parsh's magazine, uh, Bible und Liturgie, there are lots of depictions of Christ the King in there. Um, and that disappears then after World War II. Although, although it's it's funny uh, because uh, Eric Peterson's uh, cr- criticism of uh, Oda Cassell, which which got him in a lot of hot water, which he he made in the Book of the Angels, was that I well, I guess what Cassell really objected to there was that uh, Peterson really stressed the uh, what's the German word, Offenlichkeit, uh, uh, sort of public nature of the sacraments. Which shows that, and I thought this was something your article was very good at, Potter. It shows the sort of other side to what Jonathan's article showed, mm. where uh, in Charles DeConnick identifies two errors so that the common good is kind of the yeah. mean. On the one side, you have personalism, but on the other side, you can fall into totalitarianism where the state is seen as uh, right. Right. sort of a substance itself. And the personal goods, the, the, the good of the individual is uh, subordinated to and sacrificed to this other good, which is distinctly other than theirs, which is the, the good of the state. And that sort of seems like what happened to some extent with the Maria Lach folks who, who were uh, fairly enthusiastic uh, supporters of national socialism. Yeah, well, at the beginning. I mean, they soon, they soon became disillusioned for obvious reasons. As a well, they they no, they, they backpedaled. Yeah. There's there's uh, some question about how much and how vocally and when. But there are two very interesting <laughs> but, interesting reactions to Maria Lach's um, embrace of national socialism. The one is is uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, who was actually present at the conference where Herwegen said, you know, uh, the liturgical movement is is religious fascism, and the other interesting. One is Romano Guardini. Hildebrand sort of objects from a personalist point of view, obviously. Um, but Guardini even Guardini ends up breaking with Maria Lach um, over this in part, although they had published this in in the liturgical movement basically began in France, but in Germany, the really the, what kicked it off in Germany was a little book by Romano Guardini called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And um, that was published by Maria Lach with a, uh, a foreword by Ildefons Herwegen. And um, I think it's the second chapter in that is on liturgical Gemeinschaft, on liturgical community, is absolutely brilliant. It's, it's really, uh, without adverting to the, the same sort of uh, circle of text that DeConnick adverts to, it gives basically that uh, teaching of, of the... Um, the proper understanding of the common good as the the mean between totalitarianism and individualism, and shows how that's really present in the Roman liturgy itself, not just in uh, in in theory, but in the actual texts and gestures and uh, and ceremonies of the Roman liturgy. Brilliant chapter, but uh, Herwegen doesn't seem to have understood that chapter. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I, I have to say that I mean this is the, these questions are so interesting to me because um, 
you know, what, what you do find with some of the earlier authors, as you mentioned, Parsh and Guardini, um, and there are other liturgical movement authors too, you find them looking down on private devotions with a with with favoring an almost impersonal and cold public liturgy, right? Everything has to be objective. And you can see that in the artwork, as you said. Um, right. There's a kind of chilliness to the objectivity. It's almost It almost becomes like a scientific objectivity. Um, but today, of course, uh, in a kind of um, reaction perhaps against that, um, the public liturgy has been turned into a collective private devotion, right? The group expressing itself democratically and emotionally. Um, and so you have this weird inversion where the very problem that was pointed out by the liturgical movement has m- migrated to the very central, um, you know, the very center of the church, you know, so that the public liturgy is the co- collective private devotion. Um, and what, what I think you see lacking in, in both of these phases is they, they both show a lack of freedom, uh, of a legitimate kind of freedom on the part of the Christian worshiper and a lack of respect for the subtle interplay between the personal and the corporate. If you, if you're following what I'm, what I mean, that is, it seems like traditional liturgy has always had a, a, a subtle blend of this is what we're all doing in common. And this, and yet this is what individuals are able to do within under that tent, you know, within that, within that communion. Um, you know, there's always been a certain amount of freedom of posture and, you know, people can be kneeling or standing or walking around and it's not so regimented and so scripted, um, as it ends up being on these, these two contrasting models where everybody has to do the same thing and you're not allowed to have any other thoughts or feelings or, or practices, you know, can you hear me? Hello, Peter. You seem to have lost Peter. He may still be recording and we just can't hear him. It's interesting, uh, that, what he was saying there about the disdain for private devotions that you find in a lot of the figures of the liturgical movement, actually one of the key moments in the break between Guardini and um, Maria Lach was Guardini published a pamphlet on the Stations of the Cross and um, sort of defending the Stations of the Cross against uh, this disdain from, from liturgists and um Abbot Herwegen completely exploded at this. You know, the house, it's impossible, you know, this retrograde uh, defense of uh, kitsch popular devotion. Um, That's funny because Peterson, the spirit of liturgy. Peterson does a sort of similar thing. Eric Peterson does when he, he, he talks about how the, he's, what he does is he sort of breaks down in a sense, the, uh, the somewhat facile public private devotion and I think there is a there is a difference, obviously, but he he shows how you know venerating the crucifix or the crucifixion, uh, supposedly private devotion, was historically accompanied by things like you know public processions, and things like that. And right. so you you don't end up having such a thing as a private uh, religion because all religion, as such, is joining a community, you become a member of a community. And so even the most private prayers will end up having a public, uh, a public character in some way or another. And, uh, I just found that a, a very interesting, I think, I think true insight. Although I also think there is some truth in the idea that private devotionalism, you know, overtaking say the, the public say recitation of the office is a problem. Okay. Um, hold on. We're 
Should we? I can hear you, Jonathan, but I, I can't hear Peter. I can't hear Jonathan. I can hear you, Potter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe we should just wrap it up then. Before all right. Yeah, this is a good time to wrap it up. This was so much fun talking to you all. And I think there's so much uh, truth in saying that liturgy is an essential part of, of what man must do and how man is as a political animal and has a deep connection to the common good, not least because what, what is at the heart of the liturgy, the mass, is the sacrifice that Christ made for all of us and on all of our behalves. Thank you guys so much for joining us and uh, uh, look forward to next episode with you, Potter. Uh, good to be back. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be a Josiah's podcast without some technical difficulties. So 